The Financial Planning South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today, I have a return guest, my colleague Rudolf Geldenes, and we'll be unpacking delivering advice as a team. Rudolf, thanks for joining me here in our boardroom today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Now, this is, this is a concept that is maybe not that familiar to a lot of financial planners. You know, we, we end up accumulating clients in our practice. Number one, we call it my clients, which is interesting. Should maybe chat about that a little bit. But then also servicing clients as a team. I think that's taken a, a unique approach and something a little bit different, something that clients are often surprised by. So maybe Rudolf, give us give us your take on how delivering advice is different in a team format versus individual. Yes. I need to remember the audience that I'm speaking to but as everybody on the, the listenership would be financial planners, it's actually, I think the takeaway that I want for everybody else from this conversation is how nice it is to deliver advice in a team and how much pressure it takes off as me, as a certified financial planner, of being the be all and end all in that relationship where I don't have to be the one that fields all the questions. I don't have to be the the knowledge keep of my client, I can involve other people. And in delivering advice as a team, I honestly believe that our clients get better advice because it's not just my lens, but it's now the lens and the experience and the the angle that my colleagues have on a certain matter. And I believe our clients pick the fruit or enjoy the fruit of um, um, sort of multiple angles. So let's talk about the practicalities. I mean, we're, we're giving advice in the same meeting, right? Where oftentimes we don't plan out who's going to speak and who's not going to speak. How have you personally known when to step up and when have you known or how have you known to kind of step back a little bit? That is a wonderful question. And pre-coaching, I was terrible at that because I'm a massive extrovert, Enneagram 7, silver linings. So I... I want to talk because I'm excited and it's, it's fun. It's cool to engage with people and it, and it fills my tank and I get energized. But through the coaching, it's been, it's been very interesting 
to get to a sense where, well, we always need to listen two ears, one mouth. And then I think as you get to know your people in your team, co-advisors, you'll, you'll know it, which areas you are stronger and more comfortable. There's a better synergy. So you know when somebody looks like they want to say something, so you give them the opportunity to say something. You also feel when there's an opportunity to speak, when it's well-timed and it's going to add value. So it just takes not experience, it takes practice. And we get better at it as time goes on. And the more joint meetings we have with our clients in the office or in a virtual space, it, it does get better. Um, but it, it also takes a bit of self-awareness to know, yes, this meeting, I've spoken so much. Let me just shut my mouth a little bit. So Crisp is a tool that you can install on your computer and, and help you remove some of the background noise if you're having a virtual call. And a few weeks ago, I used it on a Zoom call. And at the end of the call, it said, you spoke 70% of the time. And I was horrified. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I felt like that must have at least been 10% of the time that I spoke. And it would be interesting to have that stat for meetings five years ago, six years ago. I don't want that stat of five, six, six years ago because it was terrible. So you're in increasing that amount that the client speaks. But there is an element of showing your expertise and so I think we've, in our conversations, we've been able to set each other up to almost say, hey, this part is important, Mr. or Mrs. Client. And guess what? Rudolph has unique experience in this, or Louis has unique experience in this, and, and give each other the, the A time. Absolutely. But in the beginning years, it wasn't, it wasn't like that, right? So no, no. I mean, looking back over our sort of careers, and because we've always operated as a team, which has been wonderful. So I've never luckily in my years as a financial planner ever had to be in the driving seat alone, which is wonderful, built confidence and it wasn't too much pressure to start with. But I never grew up in an environment where uh, I, I was the be all and end all. So that was wonderful. And we've just gotten so much better delivering advice as a team because we want to give one another airtime. Uh, luckily, gotten to a place where I know what I know and I definitely know what I don't know and that is becoming more than what I do know which is which is on the one hand quite freeing but setting each other up is such a wonderful way to view it because we want to keep our clients happy we want to add value to their lives so whether it comes from my mouth or somebody else on our team as long as the client benefits it's great but looking back over the years the first meetings were terrible because all of us as financial planners we want to share our knowledge because the clients will benefit and we all wanted to speak. But I think it was probably a 90-10 split with us essentially lecturing our clients death by spoken word, which I don't think is the best client experience. We'll tell you until you give up and say, okay, I'm, I'm ready, <laughs> ready to continue. It's, it is a challenge and it's, it's maybe something that I'm not sure clients expect. I mean, what are the kind of feedback that you've had from clients when there's two advisors pitching up for a meeting? Has there been feedback or is it just, oh, okay, this is the way you guys do business? I don't think I've ever specifically asked how they felt about it, but it's also because we prepared our clients that we work as a team. And then when it shows up in practice, I don't think they caught off guard. So we, I would introduce myself and our team and in the first welcome email or welcome conversation or 
whatever that interaction looks like, so that they know what to expect. And I think it helps my credibility because I'm not trying to show that I'm the be all and the end all. I'm a one man show that there's more people that know a lot more than I do with more experience. So it, I think it, it buys credibility for me, which is wonderful because I am young and I look young, which is sometimes even more of a hurdle, but I am 1.7 meters tall. I can guarantee you that. Well, so does, well, according to my doctor, but I have found times when the client's were, I think, a little bit standoffish when they see two advisors in a meeting. I think especially if it's one person and not a couple and they feel overwhelmed initially, but when they see that we are there to listen and we're there to let them talk, give them the space, then they relax very quickly. So I guess it's about positioning. As as you were saying that, I kind of, remember the side conversations that's happened a few times where there would be two clients and two advisors and very often the conversation splits and you have like this side conversation with yeah, with the other party typically maybe the wife or the or the husband that's uh, not normally attending all of the meetings and sometimes that unlocks some some valuable insights that is probably the thing that i find is lacking in a virtual environment if there's multi if it's more than two people on a zoom call or any virtual platform for that matter it's it's listen and learn to an extent yes you can still create space where clients can can unpack and they can question and they can wonder but you can never have two conversations at the same time where an in-person meeting with a couple and two advisors it, it really gives you such a wonderful dynamic because when somebody disengages and there will always be somebody that disengages because it's maybe not something they're interested in or it's maybe not their strong suit or they've had a bad experience or there's a bias involved, then you can pick up when somebody disengages and then you can engage them in a way that doesn't distract from the bigger purpose of the meeting, but it re-engages them and you can bring it back to why it's important. And you're, you're so right. The times when there's been a side conversation, what's come out of it has been so incredibly valuable because it's maybe something that I didn't want to put out with all eyes on me, but I'm happy to mention it, hey, on the side. And it impacts advice. It impacts the plan. It impacts what we talk about. So side conversations are fantastic, but you need two people to have a side conversation. If there's two clients, right? Then you need four people in the meeting. So it's, it's really been wonderful and I mean as I said earlier I only know this so I can't even imagine what it's like to be a solo advisor in a meeting where everything falls on me I mean there's been times where I had to run a meeting myself and I was the only one which is which is fine but that's never how I've onboarded a client so now it's just another meeting or another conversation so it's not the same pressure and it's it's it it changed everything I can maybe share with you a little bit of the valuable one-on-one -on -one conversation. I mean, oftentimes it's a lot more emotional, someone maybe not ready to share things with two parties. Yet I'm wondering, like, does the fact that these two advisors hinder emotional conversations? Have you been in a conversation where that's actually helped um, someone to open up a little bit? A couple of conversations come to mind that I was glad I wasn't the only one in that meeting from an advice perspective because it was overwhelming in terms of what was shared. It was hard to work through 
And it was nice knowing that I've got somebody on my team who also has experience in this area who could help navigate through this difficult conversation. So definitely there will be some clients that wouldn't share, but I think there's also some clients that have shared very difficult things with both of us in the meeting. And going to the second meeting where we were both involved again to hear feedback from a client to say, hey, uh, this was so incredibly helpful that I was able to unpack and the fact that you listened and you care about your clients, I sleep differently post-meeting versus pre-meeting. So will it hinder some people from sharing? Yeah, maybe. Um, has it hindered all of them? Absolutely not. We've had incredible conversations, deep, meaningful very difficult conversations with clients where we were both in the in the boardroom or wherever we were situated. So yes and no, I guess. You know, when a client asks, this is confidential, right? Then <laughs> you know, hey, we, we're getting set up for, uh, for them to open up. So let's chat about the actual physical location. You know, you just mentioned in the boardroom or elsewhere. What does that contribute or detract from in terms of the nature of the conversations with two people? Have you found that, you know, being at a restaurant or a coffee shop, do we have to select the location based on the type of conversation or is it the other way around? Is it, hey, we're in this conversation and now we will have this type of conversation? I believe just as much as words matter, I think your intention for a meeting matters. So where you choose to have that meeting will have an absolute impact on how comfortable people are to share because it's already difficult sharing your most intimate details of your financial life because normally there's shame attached to it because we all feel that we don't have enough, we aren't enough, we haven't done enough. So now to do that in a environment that's not conducive will mean that there will probably be hesitance in terms of what clients share, how much they share, how deep they share. So virtual has been fantastic if clients are in their own personal space. In our boardroom has been fantastic where we've tried to create as much as possible a comfortable environment where it's free of distraction. Uh, it's not like artwork against the wall with graphs of the market or CNN playing in the background with red flashing lights and showing the second to second movements of the stock market because I don't know what value that adds. And then... We've also had meetings in restaurants or coffee shops and also in the home of some of our clients. And all of them have got pros and cons. Sometimes in a neutral environment, like a coffee shop, people are comfortable to meet for the first time and they might share some things. But other times we've also had clients not share personal things in the boardroom. And you would think that this would be a space that they would or on Zoom or in the comfort of their home where they didn't share and it's also sometimes, I think, okay, because if they're not yet ready to share, they're not. But we've got to do whatever we can do, as much as we can do it, to make sure that we've created a space where there's no distractions, it's comfortable, it's quiet, it's calming, it smells nice. Um, never discount the um, area that we create because your senses are engaged when you're going somewhere new. When you know you're going to talk about something, you are hyper-focused around yourself and your awareness. It, it gets heightened when you go into that fight or flight response. And whether we like to believe it or not, if clients are about to share something difficult, it immediately puts them on alert. So to consider what your office environment or your meeting space looks like, it's important. And 
for maybe some people that didn't even realize it, but it does play an absolute role. So how easy was it for somebody to find your office? How easy was it for them to find parking? Did that stress them out or not? When they were greeted by somebody from your office, whether a receptionist or a team member, did they feel welcome? Did they smile? Were they offered a drink of their choice? Did the office smell good or bad? So did somebody just uh, warm up their tuna in the office microwave? Uh, or was it actually a comfortable environment? Are there flowers in there? Like, does the place actually seem alive or is it a very dead dreary space does it seem like boardroomy and it's like a hard environment like i'm seeing my accountant and having to get told that hey i need to pay some more taxes so i think it's something that we are trying to put a focus on because it absolutely matters and if clients are comfortable and at ease and they you can semi get them out of that fight or flight response i think the nature of our conversations and what clients share would just be so much deeper, more meaningful, more impactful. Rudolf, that's spot on. I'm so glad it's not my tuna <laughs> that's uh, being warmed up. And yeah, like clients coming in and saying, actually, I feel calm. I feel collected. Like, is it worthwhile to structure your meeting to that format and to have a check-in and just say, you know, how are you, how are you feeling being here? How can that possibly hurt? If you were to start a meeting with, how, not how are you showing up? I think finding a better way to frame it, because as I said earlier, words matter, but how you engage the client in the meeting to start with, how is your headspace today? Like, how are you showing up? Like, are you in a good mood? Obviously we can see some stuff, but like, are you actually in the right frame of mind to have this kind of a conversation? And if you can pick up that the answer is no, please don't do it. Like, park whatever you wanted to discuss for a next time. There's always another meeting. You can always shift something on. But to try and get a client to a place where they don't want to be is going to be, I don't want to say fruitless or waste of everybody's time, but you might make it worse rather than making it better. So checking in with the client, hey, like how are you doing today? And actually not just listening to respond, but listening to actually listen and take that in and then assess what you should be sharing because ultimately we prepare for our meetings as all financial planners should we've got a agenda normally but then we need to remember is it my agenda today or is it the client's agenda so why did i invite them here and if i can see something's bothering them then maybe i should pack away my agenda even though i prepared and did a lot of effort it might not be the most conducive meeting then and yeah asking the question around like hey how are you doing today um is is definitely not not a bad way to start a meeting as part of the coach training the first s in the stakes model is about setup and it's about saying what might interrupt us in this meeting and actually saying mr mr client mr client are we okay to have a chat for the next 45 50 minutes because sometimes they expect this to be 10 minutes sometimes they expect it to be three hours and i find creating those bookends you know what do you expect out of today's meeting are you ready for this? What might interrupt us? Sometimes they say, oh, I really need to take an urgent call because my daughter is in hospital. Oh, wow, hold on. <laughs> um, that's valuable information. It's pieces then we, that we need to discuss. And at the other end of the bookend is reflecting back on the meeting. And I think sometimes it just becomes a question I repeat saying, is this what you expected out of today's conversation? And very few times people say yes. They almost always say no with the caveat it was so much more oh, than one I expected. That's amazing. And I think 
one thing you left out is, yes, you end the meeting with, was this what you expected? But you also start the meeting with, what is your expectation from today's session? I know that we discussed, we want to get together to discuss X, but is there something else that's top of mind? Or if it's a new client, what would be a good outcome for you from today's meeting? And then to match up the client's response to what they would deem a good outcome to what I want out of this meeting or how I thought it would be good, normally there's a mismatch. And now I've got the opportunity to pivot to say, okay, well, if the client's expecting X, how can I deliver the content in a way that will meet their expectation and hopefully exceed it? And then to end the meeting of, well, did did reality match up to expectations? It's very rewarding to then get, yes, it was even more so. And if we didn't ask the question, we would miss out on a wonderful response to see, hey, we're actually doing work that matters. Rudolf, I mean, it sounds like you need to be quite flexible, right? If a client throws a curveball and says, I actually want to talk about this, does that mean that you have to expand in terms of your agenda of what you plan? Should you be ready for any question? Or is there a way to cultivate flexibility around the planning and the agenda? Yes, we absolutely need to be flexible because it's not our meeting. It's the client's meeting. It's not our money. It's the client's money. It's not our plan. It's the client's plan. So if we want to have a meeting about X and something else more important or central to that client's life comes up or something that's taking up headspace or worry or time, then we absolutely need to put our agenda aside, work on our flexibility if we're not flexible and deal with the issue at hand. And if that means we don't get back to our agenda, send the thing to the client and say, hey, here's some light reading, enjoy um, whatever we were going to discuss today or let's have another meeting. But you can only do that if you are dealing with the right amount of clients. If you're sitting with 300, 400 clients, that's going to be very difficult to do. And then it's going to be a thing of, well, I've got this meeting because legislation says I need to have it, right? One annual review meeting a year or two or whatever you discuss with a client and you just want to get through your list of stuff. Now, which isn't a bad thing if that's what the clients expect, but if you want to do work that's impactful, meaningful and life-changing, you need to be flexible to deal with those kind of things. And they don't come up when we want it to come up. Um, and if we look out for those cues, I think we can flip and change people's lives like in a way that we've we've never been able to do before. So let's talk about that. You know, you're saying these life events, they don't come up when we plan, yet there's a lot of financial planners saying we need to take more holidays, we need to be very structured, we need to batch our meetings, we need to see all of our clients one or two months in the year, and then the rest we need to be on holiday. Do you need to be on call as a financial planner, just like a doctor would be to say, hey, the baby's coming, you need to come and deliver. And number two, how do you deliver advice if it's not in a meeting? Or how do you deliver value if it's not in a meeting? That is a very, very difficult question to answer. So I'm going to try my best. The reason why I say it's difficult to answer is because it depends on the nature of your relationship with your clients. So if my clients see me as an expert in a field, so I bill myself out as a wealth manager or I bill myself out as a life insurance expert or I'm an estate analysis guru, whatever, then I will be offering value in that area because that's what they expect and that's what I want to do. And then those things never really come up in the form of an emergency, right? Unless maybe a client panics because I'm a wealth manager and I was promising X amount of returns and other market 
reacted differently to what I prepped the clients for. So then I might have to field a couple of calls. But if we want to be life planners, if we want to do proper financial planning that impacts every area of a client's life, their extended family, we are going to get calls, emails. Uh, we're going to be engaged by the client when those things come up and it won't be in our batching calendar. But if we batched our normal run-of-the-mill meetings throughout the year in batches, that creates margin. So either to take holiday, to work on your business, or to be ready to deal with those things when they come up. Because normally it takes up a lot of space. Client phone said, listen, I've been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness. You can't tell the client, cool, can I pencil you in for next week, right? Because how, how, how would you even frame that? Or uh, we're getting a divorce. You would need to be able to leave everything and go be with that client to take them through that massive life-changing transition, period. And for that, you need time. So I think it'll probably be a combination of working smartly, efficiently, batching meetings, obviously taking leave, appropriate leave, leave longer than seven days consecutively. Otherwise, you actually don't shut off. So sorry for those who are workaholics, but a long weekend does not count as a break. We will need to be flexible back to the previous point. Flexibility is key, not just in our planning for our clients, but also in how we set up our practices, our businesses, our client meetings and our calendars and our rhythms of work and life so that we have time for family headspace for family and headspace and time for clients over and above the statutory minimum requirements of, I don't even know what that is, but the bar is pretty low. So probably don't worry about that. I think it was you that mentioned to me, there's a doctor that blocks out a space in her diary for emergencies. Cause it's almost like, yes, it's an emergency, but we can plan for it. You know, there's a meeting space. And so if we start doing that for clients, like, Hey, this is my emergency slot. Great, I have an opening tomorrow morning. I want to talk about the the negative side of that clients feeling guilty for taking up too much of our time or too much of our resources. Uh, has that come up for you in client conversations where you've noticed the feeling of guilt from clients, even though there might be fee-paying clients? Hopefully there are fee-paying clients that are feeling guilty about the amount of resources taken up. Yes, and that's probably been more recent uh, because of the nature of how our practice has evolved and the type of work we want to do with clients. And for clients going through massive life transitions, we obviously give up more of our time. And there has been conversations in our office, in our boardroom with clients saying, I'm so sorry for sending this on to you again, or I'm so sorry for booking another meeting. And it's such a privilege for us in that moment to tell them, at this point in time, you are our most important client because all of our clients don't go through major life transitions all at the same time and thank heavens for that. But when a client is going through something significant, the fact that we got, we do have the time to take them through it because of our resource allocation, it's important to instill in them, listen, it's okay. Next year, this time, you are through this transition, hopefully. So then you will be taking up less of our time so that we can give that to somebody else. And there's like a massive feeling of appreciation and thankfulness that we actually do care about them. And that's the thing that stood out to me. A specific client's words were, it is nice to experience that you actually care about your clients. 
So because it's easy to say we care about our clients, right? Everybody says that. Even Apple says, oh, we care about our clients. Huh? But if a client can experience your care, you are doing, you're doing the right things. For someone that's very religious, what does that care mean to you? I've, I've spoken about it so often to our team, to friends, people in my life that I honestly believe that financial planning to an extent is a bit of a calling more than, more than just a career or a job because it aligns with personal values of helping people, whatever that looks like. And financial planning is, I think, one of the careers that touches such a, so many areas of a client's life. And if we can make a difference in that, it's, it's fulfilling. It's honestly fulfilling at the end of the day to know that, wow, I helped somebody with a very difficult decision, guiding them through it, not just giving them the answer and think that I did it, but led them to that realization of, oh, wow, I know what I need to do. Or getting feedback, as I mentioned earlier, hey, I, can, I sleep better at night because of our conversation. That's, it's a, it's a massive fulfilling thing. And this doing what I do every day is, is a, is an absolute calling. It's not a job. It's not a career because if it was a career or a job, I don't think I would have been able to sustain it for this long because there are parts of the job that I don't like admin. I mean, anybody on this podcast who listens who are predominantly, I guess, financial planners, we, you know, that you don't like admin. Okay. That's why we've got people. Some of that. us admit it and some of us don't admit it. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, there's, there's parts of the job that is, is just not nice, but because some parts of it is so fulfilling, it, it makes that go by in a breeze. So like some of the stuff that we've read from the Gallup Institute, like if you can just in a work day, use at like 20% of your time operating in your strengths, you will get energized by the job. Even if you do stuff that, that, takes energy and you'll actually be more replenished than when you started. So it's, um, yeah, it's maybe that ingrained thing or it's just like part of like my religious upbringing and, and my belief that like, we're also called to help people. And the fact that we can help people as a career that's also financially viable is a big deal because we've got people in our world that are social workers, for example, Right? By nature, they also want to help people, but that is a very different environment from a financial perspective, right? Because they are massively under-resourced. Same with psychiatrists, psychologists, maybe on the psychiatry side, you can make a little bit more money, but people by nature who need to help people, um, normally you aren't financially resourced enough where I think we're in a bit of a happy medium where, where we can be financially okay and we can help people, which is which is a privileged position to be in. Rudolf, I, I'm not sure if this kind of led to this conversation, but I've been thinking about the need for social workers within financial planning. Like, what people do you bring into your business to help service your clients and serve them, especially with difficult times? And, you know, Melissa, if you're listening to this, my sister-in-law, she's a social worker and, and she does miracle work, right? So she's always resourceful when people are going through very tough times, be it an addiction, be it mental health problems, be it um, illness, right? It seems like what you just said is that they don't necessarily have the financial resources. But what if we could combine financial resources with social work? You know, like what, what does that lead to? It will give our clients 
better access to services they might not have known that they needed, but will be massively beneficial. So one of the terms that's out there that a lot of the listeners would know about is like a brain trust, where your clients would come in and you would be the um, the conductor of an orchestra of professionals, which normally in our space would be your accountant, your tax guy, sometimes they're the same, your attorney, and then your wealth manager, your financial advisor, plan or professional. But that is that is the financial brain trust. That's your financial team. What about your medical team? What about your mental health team? People looking at your entire life so that you are well in all areas because well-being is more than just being financially okay. It's it's being in a good space in multiple areas, which includes like, what did your community look like? So one of the practices that I really love is a big practice in Johannesburg and their logo is a boat. So for the people that charted, you know, who I'm referring to one of the things that they've done exceptionally well is they've realized that the client space that they operate in, that their clients lack community because as they move into a different phase of their life, as they sometimes are forced to move out of their community because it was a standalone freestanding house, wherever it was, and now they are too frail to live there, they move into a frail care facility or a retirement village, and now they no longer have community. So Charter said, well, there's an easy way to fix it. Let's just have community events. So they've done except they've been very intentional, which is I think one of the most important things that practices can add to their financial planning viewpoint to make their practice excel exceptionally quickly it's being intentional so we've got clients without a community let's lump all our clients without a community into a community because now all of a sudden it's another area of their life that they are doing better in same with social same with financial obviously we touch the financial part we touch career part when we give advice and what people can do in their businesses and it is a such a value that you can add to your business if you just get to the point where we know we don't know enough in this area. So let's get specialists involved who are likable, like-minded, who also want to do it and expand your brain trust for your clients to include not just the financial people or the very smart lawyer people, but people who know how to deal with the sucky parts of life. Because honestly, that's when that's when things can go very wrong, during the, the sucky parts. Like when life gets hard, when life gets real, um, divorce, death in the family, death of a kid, flip and imagine going through that. Now, your financial planner would probably not be of much use. You would know about it, but then you need to involve people. So having a panel of experts that you can call on to say, listen, Mr. Client, chatting to this person will probably be the thing that will change your life or that will get you through this. And doing it in a software that's not judgmental to say, oh, because we sometimes joke about these things to make light of it but again words matter so how you frame it to tell a client listen I think in this area you're stuck here I can't do anything for you like we need to involve someone else and it can it can transform not just our business but the lives of our clients so those areas that you refer to that clients are stuck in, I mean, we've used the wheel of life within Oof. like a handful of client meetings. And so for those of you not familiar with it, it's essentially a coaching tool that groups your your life in probably 12, maybe nine areas that's important to you and you rank, you rank them. 
well, essentially you give them a score from one to 10 and say, how happy, how fulfilled do I feel in that area? And what's surprising for me is that finance is often quite high. It's like maybe a nine, maybe a 10. I mean, these aren't financial problems that we're dealing with. Uh, share, share a bit of the experience that, that you found um, when using the wheel of life with clients. That was probably one of the single um, biggest elements that we've added to our financial planning process over the last couple of months. And it's been the one that I was the, not the most skeptical, the most concerned bringing into a client meeting because it would be an unknown. But it's also been the thing that transformed the one specific client meeting I'm thinking about, but that transformed that engagement. And the reason was very simple. We know that the client is financially okay. Ticked all the boxes, there's a good plan in place, the client's on, not just on track to, to, to have the plan work, but they've exceeded the plan, or they, their plan works in an accelerated time frame. But, so we were hoping and knowing that in the area of money, finance, that it will be a high score. But interestingly, it wasn't a high score, or as high as we thought it would be. So unpacking what we thought it was versus why the client rated it lower, was very interesting because it was again a bias that the client had so we had the opportunity to hold up the mirror and guide them through what they thought versus what reality is and how to marry the two but that was one element of the meeting the second component was they rated their health very low and to figure out that oh well the health in low score uh, also is attached to the money and the work so to say well listen how do we balance this? Because if you were to look at and Google Wheel of Life, you'll see that it almost looks like a bit of a, a spider web where it's it's a circle on the outside and then um, closest to the bullseye of the circle, you would have a one and then you would take it out. And if you score a 10, you're on the outside of the circle. So imagine you rating your life in those different elements, whether social, community, family, work, finance, health, and you would score a majority of the ones at a five and maybe one area would be 10. The whole principle behind the wheel of life is if you were to put that wheel on a bicycle now, how comfortable would that ride be? If you consider um, there's a there's something pushing or sticking out of your wheel or one of the spokes came through the wheel and now you need to drive over that spoke, it's going to make it a very bumpy ride. So to unpack that with, with that specific client to say, you know what, all of your areas are quite quite balanced, but this one area, tell us more. And getting the client to unpack that area and the impact and what the spouse thought about it and how they would rate each other differently, uh, figuring out cool their blind spots or how they complement each other. It took it from a financial planning, forward-looking conversation, um, which was the intention and what the client wanted, to a conversation around non-work, around like what what are my hopes and dreams and what is the life that I could have but it's actually not the life that I wanted or I thought it would be different and it now has subsequently changed the plan so it wasn't the conversation around money that changed their plan which we think well the money would impact the plan right because the plan is about the money but no the plan is about their life and doing that wheel of life experiment with this client couple was massively beneficial. And that was the only thing that the clients took home with them 
when they walked out of our boardroom, I could see the husband and the wife both folding up these little wheel of life results or answers that we printed out and that they put them in the handbag and they took them home. And that was interesting because there was a lot of other stuff that they could take with them, but they didn't because it was such a valuable part of the conversation. I mean, we assume that people just have these conversations, yet we don't normally have that. I mean, I don't talk to my wife over dinner table about, well, what does your wheel of life look like? And, and maybe we can have those conversations, yet with financial planners, we can make it a little bit more structured. We can say today we are tackling this. And so a part of it feels like we can be a bit more creative, right? It doesn't have to be Mr. or Mrs. Klein, here's your balance sheet and you know, scare them out of the out of the meeting. It can be cool, let's let's go for a walk. So I'm actually taking a client on Monday. We're gonna go for a walk. It's a walking meeting. We're gonna be out in nature. There's no paperwork that we need to do. And we're just gonna have a chat about where she's at at the moment what's coming up for her, what we need to tackle, what we need to prepare for. And I'll let you know how that meeting goes afterwards. But it's, it's a concept that I've wanted to do for a while. And I think actually just saying, cool, then this is a walking meeting and the next one can be a seated meeting again. And I think using our creativity can add so much value. And this is back to the start of the episode, right? It started with, what is the benefit or why do we operate as a team or how can a team add value to a client? Number one, as a financial planner, it takes pressure off because I'm not the be all and the end all and there's multiple brands that I can pick. But also other people have wonderfully creative ideas that could benefit all of our clients. So a team can add so much and these are some of the things that we've spoken about uh, with resources that we find online and I think if we think out of the box and we don't just stick to the numbers and the pages and our education and our and how we were trained to be financial planners and we just keep the client top of mind, what would be beneficial to my client in this area or in this meeting? What would be the most conducive way? Maybe for this client, it's not another meeting about a balance sheet or about the mass amounts of decisions that they've had to make over the last couple of months they're actually so fatigued in that area that we think that they're excited to come because that's what they say but they might be dreading it because there's oh, just more decisions to be made where a walking meeting in that area or upfront saying i'm going to take you out for coffee or breakfast or lunch or we're going to go for a walk and we're not going to talk business that could be very freeing and we need to explore these things because yes otherwise life could become very boring Rudolf, that's such a nice way to end it. Thanks for taking this walk around our advice approach today with me and around engaging clients and how advice is changing. Maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. Uh, time will Definitely tell. Definitely for the better. <laughs> Cheers. Bye.